Um, we are glad that you are here this morning. And as we think about the idea of Christmas, I, I realize that Christmas can be filled with a number of disappointments. Um, I mean, we could start with gifts. And I was trying to find a statistic to see if, if, uh, uh, if anyone knew how disappointed Americans were at their gifts. And I couldn't find one. But I found a lot of articles of how you got to try to avoid your disappointments. And I, I could just tell you this, that right now, even if we surveyed the room, I'm pretty confident that, that through the course of your Christmases, you have found the gift receiving, and maybe even the gift giving, to be less than what you had always hoped that it would be. That you got that perfect gift for somebody, you thought they would love it, they open it and they're like, what is this, a mug? Do I really need another mug? Right? Or, or maybe um, they thought they got you the perfect gift, and you opened that up, and you're kind of like, wait a minute, this, this is not even my size. Is this regifted? What is happening, right? The disappointments um, on the surface level abound. But I think um, genuine disappointments um, on an emotional and relational level, um, those are deeper and those also uh, take place around this time. Uh, I was just thinking about this past year um, from last Christmas to now and uh, how many individuals, loved ones that are among our congregation, um, not in our congregation, but those that are associated with our congregation, have passed away. And how uh, this is for many of you, um, your first Christmas without maybe a parent or an uncle or a grandmother, grandfather, etc. And those kind of things, right, they, they plague us particularly when we come to the holidays, when we come to those traditional family-spent times together. And with all of that in mind, I, I just wanted us to focus on the primary, right, the primary theme of Christmas. And it's the person of Jesus Christ. And I hope to convey to you that of all things that might be less than ideal in this Christmas season, Jesus Christ has never failed to fully and absolutely satisfy the longings of a repentant heart. So this morning we want to talk about making much of Christ at Christmas. Making much of Christ at Christmas. We'll come from Colossians chapter 1, one of my favorite portions of Scripture in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And it speaks of just the person of Christ. And I would, I would give you, all right, uh, I'll show you the outline before. There you go. Um, I'll give you just kind of a brief overview as we look at a really simple message this morning about what it is that makes Christ so great. One, He is God. Two, He is the reason for all of existence. Three, He is the very glory of every redeemed soul. And He is the gift of our salvation. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But I just want you to remember, right, in the middle of having candy canes and drinking hot chocolate. I never drink hot chocolate, right? But on Christmas, I might even venture to drink hot chocolate, right? For all the traditions and things that make Christmas so special, let's remember that Christ is literally in the name. It is Christmas. And as you guys know, Christmas is derived from Christ, and I want more of him. Christmas, more Christ. That's totally made up. That is not. That's not. That's not true at all. It's actually from Christ, 
and uh, the Mass or the Eucharist, the communion, right? And the idea is that there is a joining, a sharing, a communion with the Lord as a remembrance of that day. And so that's where our word Christmas comes from. But Christ must be at the center of it all. So I would, I would seek to supply you four reasons, four reasons to make much of Christ in Christmas. So let's pray. Oh, let me read. We have uh, the luxury of being able to read these short verses, and then let's pray, and let's unpack our four reasons. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we come before you in celebration of, um, of the, the advent of Jesus Christ, the incarnational birth of God made flesh, and we know that he dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, we have the testimony of his glory through the scriptures, and he lived a perfect life, and then he died as the sacrifice, as the substitute to bear the wrath of a holy God the wrath that we deserve to pay in full. And Lord, as we look to Christmas, as we look to that day that celebrates the birth of Jesus, even while we are distracted by family and friends and, and joy and giving, Lord, remind us once again that, that at the center of it all should be the person of Jesus Christ and how we live, or we should live, to make much of Him. So as we look to the scriptures this morning, we ask for a blessing on this entire day, this Lord's Day, that it would be one that is filled with the joy of celebration and with the acknowledgement of the grace of God through the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we come to Colossians chapter 1, as I said, Colossians is... Colossians, the book, is uh, quite possibly my favorite book in the scriptures. Can I say this too? It's not sinful to like a favorite verse or a favorite book or favorite chapter, right? Just so you know. Um, because I think I, I remember hearing Derek Thomas saying that he liked a certain chapter and I think in Romans, and I thought, man, I really respected this guy. Why is he just like one part of scripture, right? And, and it's just kind of this weird judgment that we have. Like, you're not supposed to have favorites. It's like your kids, right? You got to love all the scriptures, you got to love Leviticus, those passages about the dimensions of the tabernacle, right? You've got to love it all. You should love all the scriptures as a whole, but it's okay to bear down on some because some passages speak to you in a moment in time that was particularly needed. Um, I was preaching to Colossians when I was diagnosed with cancer um, way back. I think it's been like 12, 13 years now. And so, for me, the supremacy of Christ in the book of Colossians, that's like a theme that resonated with me at the, at the moment where life could have gone so wrong. And I, I love and appreciate that. 
And this passage in particular speaks just about who Jesus Christ is, why he is so unique. He is not just a philosopher. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a good guy that gave good principles and golden rules. Not according to God's word and not according to Colossians chapter 1. Here it makes it very clear that there are indeed four reasons to make much of Christ. And none of them, none of them can be accomplished by a simple or regular or even a really nice human being. There is something divine. There is something unique. And there is something absolutely glorious about the nature and the personhood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if we were to make much of Christ in Christmas, we begin with this. He is God. He is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now there's a lot to unpack here, but let me, let me try to give you a brief understanding of this. It says that he is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus Christ is the icon. It's, it's literally the word we get our term icon from. And um, when you think of icon, what do you think of? You, you think of that graphic image, right? That you click through to start that app or that program. That's an icon. It's a representation of something else. Well, back in those days, an icon, the term specifically, meant it was the impression that was left by your signet ring. You, you probably don't have a signet ring. Neither do I. Right? But if we were important, if we were like a duke, we'd probably have a signet ring. And what they would do in those days, is they would seal some royal decree, like, you know, in, maybe in an envelope or even earlier times in a scroll, they'd put some wax on there. And while the wax was still soft, they would press down their signet ring and it would seal that message as being directly from the duke. And how would we know that? It left its perfect impression. The details that are left within that, that, that warm wax perfectly mirror the details that are part of the Duke's ring. This is what an icon is, is the, is the perfect image of something else. It, it has the form, the shape of something else. Now, I need to remind you, though, that in Scripture, it is spoken very clearly, right? You look all the way back to Genesis 1.27, that God created human beings. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, says Genesis 1.27. So how are we different as image bearers from Christ? And there's a simple answer. Throughout Scripture, whenever it speaks of us as human beings bearing the image of God, it is always spoken in the language of created in the image. We are created in God's image. God created man in His image. Here it says very clearly that Jesus Christ is the image. He's not created in the image like I'm created in God's image. We as human beings all bear the image of God in the sense that we understand something about love and needing purpose and goals, of wanting to accomplish something, of caring about relationships. Those aren't animal instincts. Those are divinely given to us because we are like our God, our Creator. But Jesus is so much more. He is not made in the image of the Father. He is the image of the Father. The exact representation of who God is. And you've got to also catch this. Icon, right, is contrasted to 
the invisible God. It's like the phrase is trying to tell us that Jesus is the visible impression of the otherwise unseeable God. It is a, a, a literary and marvelous way of proclaiming him to be God, fully God. And then look at the second part of verse 15. The firstborn of all creation. It's not firstborn as in Jesus was created as in the flesh before anything else in the flesh was ever created. It's the firstborn in terms of honor. It's the firstborn in terms of privilege. There is nothing or no one greater than the Son. He is literally the visible impression of the otherwise unseeable God, and his honor stands above all of creation, is what this is trying to say. John 1 puts it this way. In the beginning was the Word, speaking about Jesus as if he was the Word of the Father, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's John 1, 1. And then verse 14 of that same chapter says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is the eternal Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who has always been the Son. He never began or started being the Son at some point. He always was. Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternally the Son. And then at some point on that first Christmas, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation. The term incarnation literally means... In the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Nicene Creed says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The Nicene Creed, right, is an ancient Christian creed that establishes what we believe about who Jesus Christ is. He is God in a bod, right? He is God in the flesh. That is reason to rejoice. Because we don't have a God that is distant and, and kind of, you know, calculating. He's not the God that has kind of wound the clock of creation and just kind of let everything run its course. He's not far from you. He dares to come into our universe, into our physical space, to become flesh so that he might dwell among us and be a man like us. To be a human like us. So that, according to the book of, uh, of Hebrews, that he might be able to sympathize with every weakness. That he might be tempted in all things as we are, but without sin. So that he might lay down his life as a sacrifice, perfect, appropriate. Because the blood of bulls and goats could not eternally wipe away your sin, but a perfect man, a perfect God-man, could bear an eternal weight of God's wrath against sin once and for all. This is what we have in the Christmas message. Jesus Christ, come in the flesh. He is God, very God, in the flesh. 
as the one reason to make much of Jesus the Christ. Secondly, he's the reason for all creation. He's the reason for all creation. Look at verse 16 and 17. Verse 16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It unpacks an amazing statement about the person of Jesus. And I remember as a college student, uh, one of my friends, you know, as a young believer, we're just talking about scripture. And uh, um, that friend was saying, like, um, who's this talking about, the him here? And I was saying, oh, oh isn't, isn't it talking about Jesus? He's like, yeah, but the Jesus is not the creator. The Father's the creator, right? Like, why is it talking about Jesus? And, and I think there was an understandable kind of confusion. But if you read the context, clearly we're still talking about the Christ. We're still talking about the Son. And what does it say specifically about Him? Verse 16, it says this, For by Him all things were created. Now let me, let me um, kind of um, unpack this a little bit. The, the, the preposition that's used there is the preposition that we normally translate in. And I don't think that first statement, and it, and it, it Scripture will say, right, because towards the end of verse uh, 16, it says all things were created through him, dia, right, that, that it was literally by his instrumentation because, because of who he is, all things came into existence. He is the creator through, through Christ, through the Son, all things came into existence. But here, the first phrase, I think, and some of your English translations would translate, for in him all things were created. And I think that's a good translation because the point here is not so much, not, not this first phrase anyway, is not so much that he is the creator of everything that, that comes at the end of verse 16 anyway. But here, the idea is that all things were created in him. Not that he is the instrument of all creation here, but he is the reference, the locus, the explanation, or as I put it, he is the reason for all creation. For in Him, in reference to Him, were all things created. So you, you take the honor of Jesus Christ and His significance in all creation to another level when you, when you say not just that He created everything, but that everything is created in reference to Him, that God designed all of the material universe and everything that takes place and your very existence to have reference to the Son. So that when every, human, when every human soul comes before the judgment seat of God the Father, the singular question that will undo us is not, can you recount every sin that you've committed? We've committed too many. We can't. The singular question is, did you glorify my son? Because according to this phrase, the entire creation, the universe itself, and everything that exists has been created in reference to him. And then it goes on. What is the extent of this? Well, things in heaven, and, and literally it's uh, the heavens, right? Um, meaning like it, it is the, the, the celestials, the stars, the universes, the galaxies, all that stuff that is out there, the mysteries of the vast universe, all the things in the heavens, and all the things that are on this planet. Celestial and terrestrial, it all. Visible and invisible is the next, next, uh, um, next description, right? Things that you could see with your eyes and things that you can't. 
I mean, God created every material thing that you can see visibly, but he also created those things like air and wind. You can't see those things, right? Or things that are so small that they're invisible to our, to our ability to notice, right, without aid. There are things like atoms, not atoms like, you know, Elder Adam, but atoms, right? Protons and neutrons all gravitate together and turn to a little tiny planet, and the electrons like speed around them like satellites, and you get a whole bunch of them to create molecules, and these molecules create matter, and matter is the stuff that we're made up of. We are made up of the most basic elemental things that we have no concept of how these things fit together, stay together, or organize themselves. And God is the one that has created them, and they are created in reference or for the purposes or because of who Jesus the Christ is. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, um, there are some scholars that think that these are references to like different categories and, and, and uh, authority structures among spiritual beings. That may very well be. That's what the Jewish teachers used to teach. And, and that's something that Paul himself, as a trained Pharisee, that, that he would think in those terms. It could be that, or it could be more generally, like actual thrones, meaning nations, dominions, meaning you know uh, world-conquering dominion powers like the Roman Empire. It could be rulers individually or authorities in terms of their structures of government, right? Regardless of what we're talking about, human structures of authority or spiritual structures of authority, the point is they're all created. Demons and angels alike, Caesars and, and slaves alike, they're all created in reference to Jesus Christ. For by Him, or let me say it this way, or in Him, all things were created. And then this last phrase in verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. Prepositions matter. In the Greek, the prepositions are probably more precise than ours. But look at the prepositions. All things were created in him. All things were created, right? Uh, this last phrase, all things were created through him, Dia, through him, he is the agency, he is the instrument, he is the vehicle through which the creation came to be, and it is created for him, ace, unto him. So he is the in Christ is why creation is, right? Through Christ is how the creation came to be, and for Christ he is literally the goal, the purpose, the meaning of everything that exists. And so verse 17 kind of caps it off by saying this. He is before all things, meaning in his honor, his rank, his privilege, his glory. And in him, all things hold together. He is before creation itself. And he is the reason why creation exists or continues to exist. He is both the creator and the sustainer. And when you think about all of this, verse 16 and 17 is one of the most fantastic statements in all of Scripture. 
that in Christ, in reference to him, he is the reason for the existence of everything in this universe, visible, invisible, out in the stars or here on the earth, in the deepest part of the oceans, things that we enjoy, things that we don't enjoy, that everything that exists is created through him and is for him. He is the goal, the purpose, the meaning for which all things exist, including you, including your soul. And maybe some of you guys are, are visiting with us or are still contemplating the purpose and the, and the person of Jesus Christ, and you're working through this, and the thing you need to ask yourself is, is there, is there a better explanation for the beginning and the purpose of all things? And you might have some, you know, cosmic accident, things just kind of blew up, and then, you know, um, I don't know, bacteria turned to fish, turned to monkeys, turned to human beings. But it doesn't really explain the goal of it all. It's just one cosmic accident. And the human being that believes that all they are is just, just this accidental stuff of genetic material, cursed with whatever diseases they're going to eventually develop, right? Living for a short amount of time and then die, and that's all there is to them, and they just kind of mix back into the cosmic dust. There is no intention, purpose, or rhyme or reason to it all that can neither satisfy nor does it give us any real reason why the human spark in the soul is so significant. Animals do not sit around wondering about the meaning of life. Human beings do. Animals don't worry about whether this fits a moral code. They just survive. Human beings do. We, we think and we act as if there is something greater, more significant than our individual lives. That's what come when you watch like how war unfolds, why would anybody be in the front line, right, of an engaging battle? You're going to be the first to die. That's just fact. Why, why would you even be willing to do so? Why would you put your life at risk for the sake of a cause or for purposes that are not just simply for the sake of survival? And it's because we know we are made in His image. We are not the image, but we are made in His image. And we sense that there is something greater. This is the gift of Jesus Christ to us. This is why we need to make much of Him, because He is God in the flesh. And He is the very reason for everything that exists. Christian, if you're forgetting that, right? then you're probably wandering off into sin or self-centeredness, into depression or fear. You exist intentionally by the hand of God, exactly where you are because God is God and Jesus Christ is the reason why all things exist in the intention, right, of the glory of everything that has ever been made. He is the reason for all creation. Third, is the glory of every Christian. Verse 18. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and, and that in everything he might be preeminent. That he might be preeminent. Now listen, the way that I'm phrasing this in terms of my summation of verse 18 and why we should make much of Christ I'm saying that he is the glory of every Christian, but the terminology that Scripture uses here in verse 18 is that he is the head of the body, the church. So understand this. I'm equating every Christian 
to be a member of the body of Christ, the church. I'm doing that because I think in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, right, that that is, that is not just a common thing. That is an absolutely understood thing. The idea that, that Jesus died just for Nam Park so that I could live whichever way I want as long as I exercise faith in him is not just mistaken, it's a misguidance. I live in the corporate whole. He is the head of his body that is the church. He exists and he has saved us so that he might be the glory of us corporately. It's our corporate identity as Christians that I'm referring to when I say that he is the glory of every Christian. All Christians together call upon the name of Jesus Christ and recognize him. And if there is a quote-unquote Christian ministry, but they do not recognize Jesus for all these things that we are recognizing in the scriptures, that he is God in the flesh, that he is the reason for all creation, that he's the glory of every Christian, then that, that group is not genuinely Christian. They, they are only Christian by name. And I would challenge you individually that if you do not find yourself right, connected to the body of Christ in a way that is meaningful, that is, that is one-anothering, that is connected to the gospel and to who Christ is so that he might be honored in our corporate worship, in our corporate ministry, in our corporate outreach, then you are missing your mark when you say that you are a Christian. You are misnaming the concept. Because Christ, when he is identified with his body, is always identified with a corporate body. He is the head of his body, the church. He's not the head of every individual, right, one at a time separately. He is the head of his body, the church. The second part says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Again, the beginning is, is not so much that he was the first that was created. The idea is that he began it all. The body of, rede- of the redeemed, the, the corporate gathering of Christians, the identity of an individual Christian as he is part of the body of believers that make up the church family, that he is the beginning of all of that. And it describes him, secondly, as the firstborn from the dead. It refers directly to his resurrection to say that he has risen, and because he has risen, so will we. 1 Corinthians 15, starting verse 12, says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So apparently there was a group within the Corinthian church that were claiming that there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. They probably felt like you go, you die, and then your soul goes to heaven. That was a very Greek concept, that your soul is kind of trapped inside this robotic form that is your physical body. That is not the Christian concept, nor is it the Old Testament version of the human being. Human beings are whole, holy soul and holy physical. So that's why when it talks about loving the Lord your God, it's with all your strength physically, with all your mind mentally, with all your soul spiritually. It's just all one combined, right? With everything that you are, that is the whole being. And so there... Paul is correcting this misinformation that suggests that there is no resurrection, there is no coming back from the dead physically. We just turn into spirits and we join the great celestial heaven. And Paul is saying, well, how can some of you guys say there's no resurrection? He says, but if there's no resurrection from the dead, he says, these are the consequences. Then not even Christ has been raised. So if there's no such thing as coming back physically from the dead, then Christ is not raised physically from the dead. And he says, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
He elaborates. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So if Christ is not physically raised, and we're claiming that He's physically raised, we're a bunch of liars. And our preaching is vanity, it's empty. Your faith is vanity, it's empty. And He goes on to say in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If he is not raised, the atonement is not fully accomplished for the forgiveness of your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, meaning they are destroyed, consumed, and gone. There is no hope for them. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, if our Christian faith is only to make this world better, this life better, more tolerable, more easy to get along in, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, and here's the good part, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the same language as here, of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul is saying, listen, how is it that we have come to be what we have come to be? Not just saved from our sin, but with a hope of eternal life and of a resurrected body and of existence body and soul, in the presence of God for all eternity. Well, how did we get that kind of hope? It is through the person of Jesus Christ, who is the head of all those that he has redeemed. The last part is this, right? He is the head of the body, verse 18, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. The word preeminent means to have a paramount or the pinnacle of rank, dignity, or significance. It's so that Christ might be all in all. The reason why we should make much of Christ at Christmas, sorry, it's supposed to be like that, right? The reason why we make much of Christ at Christmas is because He is literally the glory, the joy, the fulfillment, the gladness, the happiness and hope of every Christian. Christian, if you haven't been feeling that, that is not because God is distant. No. If anything, the scriptures attest again and again that God comes to dwell among us. In fact, Jesus has come to dwell among us. That is the advent of, of, of Christmas. All right? And so it's not that God has stepped back from us. It's that we have chosen to think differently about Jesus Christ. We have chosen not to make much of Him and to think of Him as being our glory, our delight, our joy, and our hope. But we are starting to think of our own religion as being the source of all of those things. Our own righteousness as being the source of all of those things. Or the world's ideas of what we need to be pursuing for the sake of happiness Right? Our own self-centeredness to be the source of the glory of everything that we pursue. If He is the glory, as He should be, then not only will we make much of Him, but we find Christ to be more than sufficient. Do you have a better purpose for your life? Or is Christ that one thing that overshadows all things? Because verse 18 seems to suggest that that's what he's supposed to be. That he's supposed to be preeminent. 
have paramount rank, dignity, and importance in everything that is existence. And when he does, not only do we make much of him, but we find our lives to be not just satisfying, but so filled with hope that even the difficulties, the dangers, and the pains and trials of this life cannot compare to the glory that is to be revealed because of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished as the firstborn of the dead for all of us. We're supposed to drink all of that in from this passage, right? That, that Christ is to be the Lord and the center of every Christian heart. And if there's something else, if I sit down with you, brother or sister, if I sit down with you, and I say, hey, what, what is the center of your desires and purposes and pursuits? And you give me a name. Like, it's this dude, right, that I love. Or it's this girl that I love. Or it's my kids, or it's my career, or it's the, whatever it is. Then repent. There is nothing greater. There is no joy deeper. And there is nothing that can quite satisfy the human being that has been created in his image for his purposes. You add all these things up, they build on top of each other. He is God come in the flesh. The firstborn of all creation is God himself. And not only has he come, but he is the very reason for everything that's ever been made. Things that you can see and not see. Things that you care about and don't care about. He is before all of them. He keeps them all together. He is the intention because by him and through him, or I'm sorry, in him and through him, and for him is all things. So if he is your glory, you find your purpose satisfied, regardless of circumstances. If he is not, you find your circumstances to be overwhelming because that God is greater than yours. Christmas is an excellent time for us to think about that. So he is God in the flesh, he is the reason for all of creation. He is the glory of every Christian. And finally, He is the gift of our salvation. Look at verse 19 and 20. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. There is an intentional parallel. In fact, um, verses 15 through 20 probably is, a, is an old hymn. Um, is a, a, you know, a poem or a hymn or something that is, that is written a certain way in the early church. Because it has that kind of almost sing-songy kind of poetic um, uh, um, structure to it. In verse 19 and 20, parallel verse 16 very well. Remember we said prepositions matter. We said in verse 16 there were three. There was N for in him all things were created. There is dia, through. All things are created through him by his agency, right? And all things are created for him, that they are created in him, through him, and they are to be given to him, right? He is the reason for all things. That was the in, dia, and ace, right? In him, through him, and for him. In verse 19 and 20, you have that same function, the, the same three um, prepositions. For in him, in, right? All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile. And then to him, or for him, to reconcile all things for himself. Whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Let me first say this, that it, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It is a statement that, that Jesus is not just fully God. If we didn't catch it in the beginning that he is the visible image of the invisible God, Paul was making it extra clear here in verse 19 to say that in him, in reference to him, all of deity was pleased to dwell. The term for dwell is the term that we get our Old Testament term to tabernacle with. It tented. It, it, but it doesn't mean that it tented for a while. Like when we go car camping, like we're hoping we're not going to stay there permanently, right? For a couple of days maybe, right? Enjoy some of those, uh, you know, hard floor nights in the cold, you know, out in the, out in the wild. And then crawl back to our car a few feet away from us and drive back home, right? That's tenting, that's tabernacling with, with that temporal nature to it. This word for dwelling means to make a permanent place. It's to make a home. And to say that in Christ, the fullness of God, it's as if deity itself just dwells in the sun and has a comfortable permanent place. This isn't the car camping God. This is the God that has, that has been and eternally will be fully with the Son. It's His full deity. I love what Peter T. O'Brien says. All the attributes and activities of God, His Spirit, His Word, His wisdom and glory, are perfectly, perfectly indwelled in the person of Christ. Colossians 2.9 says it this way. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells, in bodily form. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this. He is the radiance, talking about the sun, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is exactly, right, full deity. Not a semi-God, not a demi-God, not a son of God that is somehow lesser than God and we are going to be like him and rule over planets and all that nonsense. It is simply that he is God, very God. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That, that second part, the term reconciliation, that's important. That's a relationship word. Reconciliation implies that something is broken relationally. It, it means that, that two parties are now befriended again, right? It's being reunited, and it feels so good. You know, only, only the 50-somethings know that old song, right? Appreciate your, your, your soft chuckles and pretending that you don't know that song. But that's a great song, but it doesn't capture the fullness of it. It's not just that emotionally we're reattached. It is to say that we are reconciled. When it talks about relationships, it means that we have, we have sought forgiveness and we are forgiven. If you use that same term as we do in our English, in economic terms or in terms of monetary exchange, when something is reconciled, it means we get back to zero. I owed you money. I paid you back exactly to the penny what I owed you. And now we are reconciled, right? It means that there is a gap or a separation that has been bridged, but has been bridged by exactly what payment was necessary to make what was lost and separate come together in full relationship again. Reconciliation is a marvelous word. It's not just that Christ paid for you and then left the restaurant, right? 
is he paid what was deficient in you so that you, a sinner, and the holy God can now be one and together, not just a peace that is a truce, but the kind of peace that means that there is never going to be a fight again and is accomplished in his blood. Making peace by the blood of his cross. The reason why we exalt in the Christ of Christmas is because he is literally the gift of our salvation. He was born, yes, but he was born with a purpose, a terrible and wonderful purpose, so that he might live that perfect human life. But being God, very God, and being man, fully man, that when he laid down his life, that sacrifice would be so much more than simply one human being dying. It'd be worth so much more than countless animals being sacrificed. That the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one unique Son, in His incarnation, is able to pay for the sins of all those who have placed their faith in Him. And by that, He is able to reconcile the entire world and to reconcile the world to Himself. So you have these, these, again, the repeat of these three great um, prepositions, right? For in him, in reference to him, um, for the sake of him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, by his agency, by making peace, by the blood of his, of his cross, by dying the sacrificial death of, of, uh, of our Savior, by, through him, he reconciled all things for him. For himself. So that he might have you. So in a way, maybe I said that wrong. He is the gift of our salvation, but he is really, he is the the gift of bringing us back to himself. The, The last thing I want to connect in your mind in verse 19 that I find is interesting is of all the things that, that Paul, and under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that could have mentioned in the first phrase. The second phrase makes sense to us, right? Through his agency, it's because he die, died that he's able to reconcile us to God. And in particular, he's able to reconcile us to himself. It was through him and it was for him that things on earth or in heaven, that the entire universe will be reconciled, will be set right. Um, in the eyes of a holy and righteous God is, is, is Him in the death of His cross that begins, right? That begins the reconciliation of all the universe. But that first part, verse 19, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, it is implying that it is part of His, his deity, it is part of the fullness of God in Him that was able to reconcile all things on the cross. Listen, I, I'm not going to pretend that I can divide it up for you in exact percentages, right? How much of Christ was God the Father is 100%. How much of, or, or how much of God was deity or was divine is 100%. How much of, of Christ is, um, you know, is, is, is human, it's 100%. And it doesn't make full sense, but it, that's what he is. And as he is the God-man, and it is because he is the God-man and not simply a good man, He is able to die to reconcile all things back to himself, including you. This is the reconciliation we have because of Christmas. 
This is the salvation that is our gift because of the person of Jesus Christ. And in case we are not certain about how bad we were, verse 21 it just kind of encapsulates it all and says, You were once alienated, meaning you were absolutely separate. You were once hostile in mind, which tells us the reason why reconciliation had to happen. You were doing evil deeds, so by, by, by your distance, by your attitude, and even by your actions, alienated, hostile, doing evil. And yet he has now reconciled you through the body of his flesh in his death so that he can present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 21 and 22 is just an extrapolation of what verse 19 has just said. It is explaining further the idea that we deserve to be separated from God for eternity. And Christ has died so that he might draw us back in in reconciliation to himself. This is the in Christ, all things made in reference to him, including our salvation. This is the through Christ, that he created all things materially in this universe, and he's reconciling all things through his death on the cross. And this is for Christ, that it is for him that all things exist, and it is for him that he has reconciled sinners like you and I. And it begins... It begins at the incarnational birth of Jesus Christ at Christmas. Jesus Christ. He is the reason for the season. That's a great phrase, right? But we have four reasons to make much of him, make much of Christ at Christmas. He is God in the flesh. He is a reason for all creation. He is the glory of every Christian soul, and he is the gift of our reconciliation. He has brought... He has bought us and brought us near to himself in Christ, through Christ, and for Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we have taken time to meditate upon the Christ of Christmas, we give you praise and glory for your wisdom in giving us life through him. And Lord, I know it's, it's easy to be distracted and to be glad um, for the family and friends, and, and maybe for some of us, it's, it's heavy because of the loss of some family and friends. It's easy to be distracted because of the gifts or the gift-giving, or maybe some of us are distracted for the lack of some things that we feel like we have need of. But remind us again that, Lord, all those put aside are secondary. There's one reason why Christmas should be significant to everyone in this room, and it's because of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us. So may we live in reference to Christ. May we live through his death and his work on the cross for us. And may we live and act and breathe for the sake of being his and honoring him with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.